Hey everybody, Eric here. Just wanted to slap a quick trigger warning on the beginning of this episode because, as you may have gleaned from the title, it contains a bit of cursing. I know a lot of you are more excited for this episode, sheerly because of that fact, which is good. It's a great episode. But for those of you who are turned off by the occasional F-bomb, I just wanted to say, we'll miss you. I'm serious. We'll really fucking miss you. Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern bar cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome back to another episode of the Modern Barkhart Podcast. I am your fucking host, Eric Koslick. You may be asking yourself, why the cursing? I thought this was a nice, polite podcast about yummy drinks. So why, pray tell, are you being such a potty mouth? Well, first of all, because it's fun, and also our interview guest this episode has found a way to incorporate a bit of irreverence into her cocktail blogging and recipe sharing. Her name is Emily Ferris, and she is the Kansas City-based lifestyle blogger and Instagrammer behind the boozy bungalow. But before we get too fucking far ahead of ourselves here, I think it's time for you to make yourself a drink. This week's featured cocktail is the Horse Feather. To make one, you'll need two to three ounces of whiskey, bourbon or rye, work really well here, four ounces of cold ginger beer, Angostura bitters, or maybe some embitterment aromatic bitters, and a lime wedge. This is essentially a Moscow mule made with whiskey instead of vodka, and all you need to do to prepare it is combine all the ingredients in a pint glass or a fancy metal mug with ice. Give it a very quick stir once you've got all the stuff in there and enjoy. We cover the horse feather in a bit more depth later in the episode, but I'd like to zoom in quickly on one aspect that really stands out to me, the bitters. Yeah, 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 I know you're zoning out now because I always like to talk about the bitters, but this is seriously important. If you think about what a mule cocktail is made of, you've really got two strong ingredients, right? Lime and ginger. These make a really refreshing combo, but they can also tend to drown out certain more subtle characteristics of your base spirit, for example. So by adding a few dashes of bitters, you can both cut down on the burn of the ginger and the lime, kind of smooth it out a little bit, and add a bit of complexity to the cocktail. And in the case of mules, they're usually praised for their refreshing qualities, not their depth. So this is a good opportunity for you to get in there and flip that script. People will say that the horse feather and the Kentucky mule are pretty much the same thing, right? They look and feel very much the same, but I don't see a whole heck of a lot of Kentucky mule recipes out there calling for bitters. So if there were a race between these two cocktails, I'd have to say that the horse feather wins by a nose at least in my book. Getting back to business here, some of the topics that Emily and I discuss in our wide-ranging conversation include how the boozy bungalow brings a shot of humor and reality to the recipe sharing and lifestyle blogosphere and the overly precious Instagram landscape. 
why Emily sometimes enjoys using lowbrow ingredients in her cocktail creations, and why she doesn't really care what the cocktail snobs of the world think when she does. Some notes on the burgeoning Kansas City cocktail scene, tips for taking great Instagram photos of your drinks, recommendations for the strategic deployment of the word fuck, and much, much more. You can read Emily's thoroughly enjoyable blog posts and check out her original cocktail recipes at theboozybungalow.com, and you can follow her on Instagram at theboozybungalow. But for now, how about this? How about you just put in your fucking headphones and enjoy this occasionally vulgar chat with Emily Ferris. Fucking Emily, thank you for being on the podcast. Oh my God, that's the best fucking intro I've ever had. Fucking Emily, uh, that's my new name, my new handle. I'm changing everything. Beautiful. Uh, so can you just introduce yourself for our listeners? Sure. My name is Emily Ferris, and I am a food and drink writer and lifestyle writer. And now that I have a kid, apparently I'm also a parenting writer. Uh, but the reason I'm here is that I have a blog and um, an Instagram account that gets way more attention than the blog called The Boozy Bungalow. Mm. And is this an evolution of something that was before it? It is. I started an Instagram account and a blog um, in March, uh, St. Patrick's Day of 2017. And it was called Festive AF. Well, actually, at first it was called Festive as Fuck. And my handle was That's Festive as Fuck. And my URL was That's Festive as Fuck. Um, but I quickly realized that I could not advertise anything on Facebook that even had the word fuck in the metadata or the URL. Uh, so I had to change it to that's festive AF, which probably worked out a little better and was a little easier for people to stomach. Uh, but I, but as time went on, um, I realized that uh, if I did want to make this a thing and possibly work with sponsors ever, not sell out, just work with sponsors, um, that I needed to be a little more uh, digestible to the, to the general population. So I changed it to the Boozy Bungalow because I also wanted to um, incorporate more home decor. So Festive AF was cocktails and crafts and DIY, and the Boozy Bungalow is cocktails and um, more home decor. I imagine when you switched to uh, Festive AF, you started getting some nice Air Force uh, search traffic as well. You know, I apparently didn't set up my uh, my Google Analytics well enough to notice that. So. <laughs> All right. So uh, you actually came to me as a request from another listener who is based in Kansas City, which is where you operate out of, correct? Yes. Yes. So I that's actually so had flattering. I'm so flattered. So thank you, other listener. Yeah. Well, so this other listener, uh, shout out to Greg Azorski. He uh, actually rolled through D.C. where we are based and he and I actually got to grab drinks, hang out a little bit. And he said when I asked him who he would like to have on the podcast, you were the first name that he listed. Oh, my God, so, Greg, I love you. I'm going to make you a drink in yes. Kansas City sometime, as well, long as you're not creepy. Well, Don't be find him. He's no, not, not a, no, not I a totally recognize dude. his name. So either either we've we've either been in contact on Twitter or Instagram. Or, I recognize the name. So Yes, he makes amazing prints and T-shirts. He actually we did a little giveaway uh, recently with a couple of his uh, Negroni and Boulevardier prints. So mm. definitely uh, check him out at KC Cool 11 on Instagram. And um, so 
you know, what I did is I, I looked a little bit more into you and what you're all about. Uh-huh. And I, nothing, nothing more than, you know, your Instagram and your website, but, uh, you take a bit of a different approach to the cocktails and the DIY stuff than, than some other people out there, uh, who may be popular, you know, what we'll call influencers or lifestyle folks. Um, so can you tell people how you approach and think about the cocktails and the, um, crafts and, and lifestyle stuff that you write about? Yeah. Um, so a little background, I am, uh, I, I do crafts and DIY and cocktails, um, as part of my job, and we'll probably get to that later, but I do some of those projects for clients. And I mentioned that I started this, uh, the Festive AF in March of 2017, and that was right after the inauguration of that orange piece of shit, who I know this is not a politics podcast, so that's as far as I'll go with that. Uh, I was really sad, and I needed something to distract myself and to make me happy. I was also, I had a kid who was, um, what, he just, he was a little a little over one and I wanted to do something to make me feel like it was just mine. And so I thought, well, people are paying me to make cute crafts and delicious, beautiful cocktails and take pictures of them and write about them. But it'd be really fun to just do it on my own terms and, you know, be able to drop an F bomb in the copy when I want and be really realistic about it because I feel like there's so much fluff and like just, it's like sometimes, especially DIY, is just so precious and people take themselves so seriously and everything has to be so perfect. And I also, with DIY and with cocktails, sometimes it's just so fucking complicated. Like most people who look at something on Pinterest don't have a table saw and some other tools I can't even think of right now. They don't have a hand sander. They're not going to like follow your 75 step plan to build a bookshelf for your plants. You know, right. I wanted to do projects that people could actually recreate at home. And I kind of take that same approach to drinks every once in a while I'll throw in, you know, I get gifted a lot of bottles. So I'll be like, oh, I'm going to play with this absinthe or this, you know, peach liqueur or this apple brandy. Most people don't have those things on their bar. So I try not to use them a lot. I really want to make things that people can make it home. And I really just, I I have fun with it. And, you know, so I get excited. I drop an F-bomb. I get pissed off. I drop an F-bomb and I, I just didn't want to do lifestyle like everyone else is doing it, which is very, like I said, precious. It's very safe. It's very sweet. And that's just not me. I've said that like, nobody's ever called me nice. Like I'm, I'm a kind person. I'm a fun person. I'm a generous person. I'm like trying to drive immigrant mothers across the country to get reunited with their kids, but I'm not, you know, sweet, nice little DIY, uh, just perfect. You know, that's just not what I do. Mm. Yeah. I like this word that you're using precious. Uh, and I definitely agree. I mean, I mean, if anybody, you know, is I think conscious right now on Instagram, they're definitely familiar with the way these types of posts and these types of accounts operate, right? You've got, um, you know, emojis just coming out of their ass and, um, everything is rainbows and sunshine and it's very aspirational. Uh, and I think the point that you're kind of making 
as well is that it, it's aspirational to the point where it completely lacks function. Uh, yeah, it's people impossible. Can't do like, it. I'm never going to be, and I'm fucking crafty and I make a really good cocktail. I'm never going to be those perfect women on Instagram who have their perfect homes and their perfect bodies and their perfect meals. And let's be honest, no, but not everything is going to be perfect behind the scenes. Um, but that's just, I felt like the, the lifestyle space needed like a dose of realness. And I feel like I bring that. Mm, I can't agree with you more there. Um, so I want to get back to some of the themes that we're talking about, but, but first, um, you know, I had a, I had a question, uh, cause you and I had a, a little bit of email back and forth and as we were kind of getting to know each other, one of the things that you told me is that, you know, you're not a professional bartender or mixologist, but yet you are a professional recipe developer. So, yes. um, obviously these things are related. So I, I wonder if you might be able to talk a little bit about that and, you know, how they're similar and how they're maybe a little bit different. Yeah. So bartenders are, um, they're amazing. They can make, you know, they have a million drinks in their arsenal. They are creating new recipes all the time, but bartenders are making drinks to sell at a restaurant or a bar, right? So they're making a drink that needs to taste really good. And so they can use all of the methods they want, all the techniques they want and all the ingredients they want. As a recipe developer, I try most of the time to develop recipes that people can actually recreate at home. So bartenders or mixologists are creating recipes that they are going to make and serve to people. And I'm creating recipes that I hope taste almost as good as anything you get at a bar, if not better. Um, not always. I don't want to, I'm not, I don't want to sound like I'm saying anything bad about bartenders, but you know, any as good as something you get at a bar or close and some, but you can make it at home. So I'm sharing where bartenders are creating drinks for people. I'm creating recipes for people. Mm, interesting. So it's like, uh, kind of like give a man a fish, teach a man a fish. Yeah, sort of. Yeah. One of the interesting things that kind of popped into my head as you were talking about recipe development and, and cocktails is something that is probably the core issue in cocktails that I've been struggling with. And it usually I like to have answers to things. I, I like to you know, know where I stand on something. And, and so rarely do I find something in, in my area of expertise where I'm just like, I'm really not quite sure about this. And what occurred to me is that cocktails, like they're not grounded, they're not nutritious. Um, and, you know, the things that they do the levels at which we interact with them are sort of like higher up on the scale of human needs in terms of like, you know, we're, we're doing this for flavor and intellectual curiosity as opposed to um, the fact that we need to eat or we will fucking die. Uh -huh. um, and it, it's a it's a central kind of tenet of culinary art that like, listen, yes, you're going to make this beautiful dish. And if you're at this Michelin star restaurant, it's going to come out. This, the service is going to be like this. Um, the guest will be expecting something like this, but at the end of the day, it still needs to provide that basic role as calories, as nutrition. Uh, and cocktails don't have that, do they? No, I mean, well, <laughs> it depends on the ingredients you use. Um, but generally, no, I mean, they are, they are fun. 
And I mean, they're, they're a privilege. Not everyone gets to enjoy fun, fancy cocktails, whether they go out to a bar or uh, they make them at home. Um, I mean, for me, cocktails are a hobby. They're not, it's not me just trying to elevate something that I need in my life. Um, it really, it's a hobby for me. Mm. Um, it's, this is, I wasn't really intending on, in like getting into this per se, but it just, it seems to work so well with, you know, your approach to, um, cocktails and, and even the way that you, you choose to communicate that stuff. And I remember I was, I was reading this article right when I started getting into cocktails and there's a guy named Derek Brown here in DC who's responsible for a lot of the amazing things that have happened in the bar community, uh, during the cocktail Renaissance. And I remember I was, I was getting my master of fine arts in poetry, uh, which is exactly as pretentious as it sounds at the time. <laughs> and I remember reading this and he said something to the effect of this cocktail Renaissance or revolution or whatever you want to call it. And like at that time in my life, I was like, you know, words were important to me. So I was like, whoa, who is this guy? Like to be, I was like, he's clearly very important, but he doesn't even know what it's called. And <laughs> so th this started me off in this whole rabbit hole of like trying to figure out what I think about what the cocktail thing that we're in right now should be called. And it occurred to me that there's a difference between a renaissance and a revolution. And I think, oh, yeah. I think that what we've had is, is a renaissance, right? A rebirth of people bringing up all these new recipes and, uh, or all these old recipes rather. And, you know, uh, people kind of systematically going through cocktail history and cocktail culture and everything from the martini to tiki to speakeasies and having all these little boxes that were forgotten kind of reopened. And I think that definitely counts for a renaissance, but I think the difference between a renaissance and a revolution is that in a, in a renaissance, everything is still occurring at the highest levels of society for, you know, as you were mentioning, people of privilege. And in a revolution, it involves everybody, whether they like it or not. And mm -hmm. um, you, that, I, I, I'm not quite sure. I wonder if you have any thoughts on how, like a cocktail renaissance could be turned into a revolution uh, or if that's even possible. Um, you know, well, it's funny. I was calling the Kansas city cocktail scene, a renaissance in 2010 when I wrote my first in-depth article about cocktails. Um, and I do, I absolutely agree. It's a renaissance and I don't know that cocktails need a revolution. I, you know, people enjoy them or they don't. And I don't know. I, you, you mentioned you say a revolution involves people, whether they whether they want to be involved or not. And I I just feel like there's so many people who aren't interested in cocktails. So just let them have their Budweiser. Mm, let them or have not. their Budweiser. That'll be yeah. the sub that'll be the subtitle. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that said, I, I do feel like mocktails are kind of having a revolution as much as I hate that name. Non-alcoholic drink, drinks are kind of having a revolution. In what respect? Even if it's a small. Well, they're just. So many people I've seen a lot of people who are very involved in the the food and beverage world professionally, whether they're writers or chefs or bartenders who are really focusing on non-alcoholic or low alcoholic drinks right now. And I think that is 
that they're trying to be much more inclusive and include people who don't drink either by choice or because they're in recovery or because of a medical issue or because they just, you know, don't want to get too drunk. I think it's it's great that people are finally taking non-alcoholic or low alcoholic cocktails seriously. Now, they're not for me. I definitely have gone to a bar and said, "Ooh, I want that low alcohol or I want that non-alcoholic cocktail. But can you put whiskey in it? Like, I kind of be like an asshole when I do that. But <laughs> it sounded really good, you know, and I, but it's it's nice that there are those options. And I think that's a bit of a small revolution, a tiny revolution for people who who otherwise have felt left out of the cocktail scene. Mm. Yeah, I really do agree with that. I, I think, you know, one of the things that, you know, has been mastered at this point is the, you know, seven to ten dollar, you know, depending on what market you're in, uh, the seven to ten dollar old fashioned has been mastered. And I think that was a big step in accessibility because it puts a really good, well-made cocktail on a on a bar menu at a price that somebody is not going to get turned off by. So I think that is a big step. Um, but beyond that, I think there's, in terms of inclusivity and including people, I think there's still a lot of work to be done. And, uh, you know, I, I definitely agree that that making non-alcoholic or low ABV uh, options more available is, is, is a good step in that direction. Absolutely. And that said, like, I consider myself a very privileged person. I live, I have a ton of debt and I'm horrible with money, but like I have a really full bar and I, you know, I, when I want things, as long as they're not crazy, I buy them. I go out and spend way too much of my income on food and drink, less so now that I have a kid, but I still, when I see an $18 cocktail, I know what goes into it. I'm still like, oh my God, I can't spend $18 on a cocktail. Like it's, and part of that might be because I do make them at home, uh, but it's it can be prohibitive to people and exclusive. Mm. So let's talk now about high and low in the cocktail world. And, oh yes. Uh, you told me something pretty interesting uh, via email that I want to return to. You said that you enjoy trolling cocktail snobs by using really low ball or low brow ingredients. Uh, so I guess my question is, why do you do this? And for you, what's the value of that sort of reality check? I don't know. I mean, okay. I'm for one, I'm just kind of a provocateur. I always have been. Um, but I don't know. Cocktails should be fun. And I get that for some people, they are serious business and it's their livelihood and they take them seriously. And without the people who take cocktails really fucking seriously, we probably wouldn't be having this cocktail renaissance. So thanks guys. But also like chill the fuck out. Let's have a little bit of fun. And, you know, I'm in a couple of Facebook groups with uh, with, you know, home bartenders and professional bartenders and whatever. And, uh, I made one recently that had, uh, what was it? Uh, cold brew coffee and orange soda. Mm. <laughs> and it was so good. I want to look it up now. Um, if I can, if I can bring it up. Um, but I posted in this group and I got, you know, people were laughing at it and like, Oh no, that's weird. But the drink was so good. It was, uh, bourbon based. Summer um, session coffee cocktail. Yes. So my summer, the, oh, there. So I have two. I have my summer session coffee cocktail, but another one. Um, what did I call this one? Uh, 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 oh, I called it the cold fashion. Hmm. So it was rye whiskey, cold brew coffee, uh, vanilla extract, Peychaud's bitters, Angostura bitters, and orange soda. And it, it's so good. So it's kind of like an old fashioned, a little bit. It, it's it's inspired by an old fashioned, but I use 
orange soda and cold brew coffee. And it worked so well. And even my husband, who generally prefers a Manhattan or a beer to my fruitier, more tart cocktails, was mm. just so into this drink. Um, I don't, I, it's, it's just a really... I like using ingredients that you wouldn't expect. Of course, your people use soda in a cocktail. Yes, use club soda, use tonic, you know, fancy sodas, whatever. But people weren't expecting orange soda. And I don't know. I like doing that. I also, though, there there are some times where it fails. Recently, I was like, I'm going to use peppermint schnapps in a cocktail. Mm. I'm going to I'm going to show them. And oh, I, it was just like mouthwash. I couldn't I couldn't do it. Yeah, I've um I've heard I I once was on a, another cocktail podcast where one of the hosts was explaining that that he it was just on a quest to use Jägermeister correctly in a cocktail <laughs> and like have it like actually pull it off uh, and it's still remains his white whale that that he's he's chasing and he's just never managed to make something with Jägermeister that actually works. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm all about being silly and using unexpected ingredients. But at the end of the day, the most important thing to me is that my drinks taste good. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to sacrifice, you know, I'm not going to sacrifice my drink just to screw with some cocktail snobs on Instagram. Right, right. It, so I think, you know, if, if we're if we're really breaking down and dissecting what you do and, and, and your approach to cocktails, it seems like the core, the heart of it is got to be easy, got to taste good. Uh, which is something that everybody can relate to. And then building on top of that, uh, you know, you kind of put in the other touches, the flourishes of surprise and a little bit of comedy, right? Because, uh, you know, we get this, right. you know, we uh, I, let me just read a little bit uh, from, from one of your recent posts so that people can get uh, a bit of the flavor of of your writing because there's there's a little bit of comedy here it's it's uh, a little bit self uh, it's sort of at your own expense uh, which I think makes it a little bit more relatable but this is from a post called uh, she put the lime in the coconut <laughs> and uh, you say I don't know about you but every time I hear put the lime in the coconut it sounds like the beginning of a really good cocktail recipe so I finished it. My version goes a little something like this. She put the lime in the coconut milk, in parentheses. Then she added whiskey. She put the lime in the coconut. Then she added ginger beer. She put the lime in the coconut, and she drank them both up. She put the limes in the garbage disposal, and oh, fuck, the kitchen is flooding. And then you go on to talk about how you're, yeah, as you're doing this uh, photo shoot for this post, your garbage disposal basically uh committed suicide and you had to go to Home Depot and get another one. And it's, it's a little bit of comedy. Um, but we still, uh, get this really refreshing and amazing cocktail recipe. And, um, you know, it's, it's interesting the way that you package that to make it so entertaining for, for your readers. Well, thank you. I feel so flattered that you enjoyed it. <laughs> so, but I do, I, you know, I don't, I don't, I feel like if I'm going to write something, cause I, I'm a professional writer. Uh, there, there has to be some value, right? So I'm going to write you the recipe and there's some value to that. And the rest of what I write, it either has to be really informative or entertaining. And I am not a cocktail historian. I am not even like a spirits nerd. So I, I, I am not the right person to give you the history of coconut milk and cocktails or to tell you um, why maybe you probably shouldn't mix lime juice and coconut milk because it might get curdled and weird. Mm. Uh, I'm going to just 
tell you what happened when I made this cocktail and that it's really good and maybe don't let it sit too long or it will get curdled and weird and, you know, just drink it and enjoy it. I, I just, I, it's hard for me to be entirely earnest when I write anything. Um, and so when it comes to my own blog, which I decided was kind of like a, you know, give no fucks approach to the lifestyle space, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna write exactly what I want. And it's, it's, you know, it's, it, I'm glad that it's entertaining for other people and it's fun for me to write that and just put it out there and be like, I'm just fucking writing this and this is what's out there. And there's no editor to tell me to tone it down or, uh, you know, it, it's just really fun for me. It's cathartic. And like I said, I started it after the, uh, inauguration as a way to kind of make myself distract myself and do something fun. And, uh, it, it's been working for the most part. That's good. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about fuck here. This is definitely yeah. the anchor of the episode and what makes it Have so... I been using it enough? I'm sorry. Do you want me to fucking say fuck more often? Cause like, I feel like I'm letting you down already. Not no, fuck no, us. not, not at all. I think we're, okay. I think we're pretty fucking solid right now. So fucking great. Um, but why, why is this word just so good? You know, because nobody just like ignores fuck, you know, mm. like you, if, when you use the word fuck, you're not going to get ignored either. You're going to offend people, which I've absolutely done and do and will continue to do probably until the day I fucking die. Um, or you're going to shock them or perhaps they will be endeared to you because, you know, some people, some people I know follow me just because I curse. It's like, you know, they're their uh their feed is full of lifestyle you know really religious lifestyle bloggers and everything is super sweet and uh they you know they they want something that's a little bit different Mm. well you're probably really going to dislike this comparison but uh you know there was recently a, a very large event that we've cited a couple times already in this interview and the reason that many people give for uh, Mr. Orange's success is oh my God, because, don't compare me to him. Is because <laughs> he was able to resonate with the people. And uh, I don't know. I, I, I got to say, like, uh, the word fuck really does a lot of work to cut through some of the pretentiousness and the um, sort of, again, preciousness of the, the lifestyle messaging that's out there. Uh, and I think that it's it, it's kind of refreshing to see in a world where everything is perfect, unwrinkled, and, um, you know, just way better than you could ever do it at home. Yes. So the difference, oh, there are a lot of differences between us, but yes, let's, let's I'm talk using about the that. word fuck and, you know, bringing joy and drinks and DIY into people's lives. And that fucking ass hat is ruining people's lives. So mm. I, I get, I get the compare that, you know, people relate and, uh, pay attention to strong language and somebody who kind of comes out of the gate, not giving any fucks. So sure. I will take that comparison, but that's, that's where it ends. Right. You're using fuck for good. Yes. Right. I'm the good fucking witch of the West. Or I don't know. Something like that. <laughs> the good, good fuck witch. The that good, doesn't sound right. No, the fuck witch sounds like something you would not want to order on uh, no. any menu. No. Um, so you, are based in Kansas City. And before we get to the lightning round here, I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the cocktail scene in the Midwest, because 
uh, as I'm sure you're well aware, the coasts tend to dominate cocktail culture. We've got New York, we've got San Francisco, Portland, D.C., Boston. These areas tend to kind of control most of the conversation about cocktails. And so I wanted to you know, give you a chance to talk a little bit about what's going on in Kansas City or the Midwest in general. Yeah, there's so much going on here. So I moved away from Kansas City when I was 18 and full disclosure, I was like still drinking sour apple pucker straight out of the bottle. Um, and I moved to New York. And I lived there for about I lived there for nine years. And that's I became a food writer when I was there and a, and a writer. And I came back to visit and I was just kind of surprised by how much Kansas City, especially the downtown area, had evolved since I left. And when I I decided to move back for lots of reasons I won't get into, one of which was an apartment because as the boozy bungalow, I'm really into real estate and decor and space. Um, but I was just really kind of blown away by what was happening here because it wasn't big yet, but the people who were were doing it, who were like making the change and you know leading the the revolution or the I'm sorry the renaissance here in Kansas City were doing a really good job and they were making waves. Um, and one of them, his name is Ryan Maybe. And um, he opened a place called Manifesto, and it was a little speakeasy uh, in the basement of a restaurant. And I, I wrote about, I pitched a, this whole magazine story about Kansas City cocktails kind of based on that. Um, and now, almost a decade later, he has uh, revived the old um, Rieger, Jay Rieger and Company whiskey brand, and now they're making uh, whiskey and gin, and they're about to open a huge visitor center distillery in a neighborhood that kind of needs some development. And it's just like one little piece of what's going on, but there are distilleries popping up everywhere. Um, you know, mid-sized distilleries and small craft distilleries. And I think one thing that they all have in common or that most of them have in common, which I really appreciate is that they kind of, they all kind of like consider somehow the history of Kansas city and, Prohibition and Pendergast and, you know, there was a Kansas City was uh, don't quiz me on my history because it's been a while since I have, you know, um, really studied it. But Kansas City was a big part of that era. And that that feeling kind of exists in everything that's happening. Uh, but none of it's the same. So so, you know, Manifesto is doing one thing and um, there's, you know, a whiskey bar julep doing another. thing. We just there's a lot of fun bars. There's a lot of fun distilleries. It's so fun to go into a new cocktail bar or an old cocktail bar and see a new cocktail with, um, you know, a local spirit or a local mixer. There's just, it's kind of like what's happening on the coast, except it's happening in a Kansas city style. It's not, nobody's trying to be New York or San Francisco. And there's a lot of um, local ingredients being featured and I don't know, it's just, it's really fun and it's accessible and it's not overwhelming. Like you go to New York and you want to check out cocktails. It's overwhelming. You, know, you pick a few places. But in Kansas City, you know, it's it's big, but it's small enough that you can kind of get a sense of the cocktail scene if you spend a week here. Mm. Kansas City, with uh, obviously its fame for barbecue, strikes me as a bit of a whiskey town. Is that true? Yes, though I might be saying that just because whiskey is my spirit of choice. Um, but yeah, I mean, we have, I'm trying to think of all of the local distilleries. I mean, all of them are making some form of whiskey. Um, I can't really think of one that's not, um, 
we are a whiskey. Yeah, I would say we're a whiskey town. Mm. Yeah, there's um, and beer. I mean, beer, obviously. Of but course, whiskey. of course. Yeah. Cool. So, if anybody were to head out to Kansas City, let's say one of our listeners would uh, be flying in and maybe spending a weekend there with a relative or on a long business trip. Are there any um, highlights? And these can be booze related, cocktail related or not. Uh, anything that that's a must see around town? Yes, but I'm probably going to leave some out and forget something. But off the top of my head, um, I mean, if you're going to go one place for drinks, you should probably go to Manifesto. It was kind of it's kind of the anchor, uh, you know, specialty cocktail craft cocktail bar in Kansas City. It's in the basement of the Rieger. Um, but before you go to Manifesto or after, have dinner upstairs at the Rieger, one of my favorite restaurants. Um, I am biased here, but my husband is the uh, brand ambassador for Boulevard Brewing Company, and they a couple of years ago built a brand new big uh, visitor center for their tours and. Um, they you know, wonderful tours, but then there's a great beer hall where you can get flights and the design is amazing. And it's just a fun place to hang out. Um, hmm, so many good places. Uh, Julep is a great craft cocktail bar in Westport, which is kind of the entertainment district. Um, just down the block, I think the same building is Port Fonda. Um, uh, Chef Patrick Ryan, they've gotten a ton of press. Uh, the Chilaquiles are to die for, so go there, get chilaquiles. Um, God, there's so many. I, like I, I, uh, I'm worried I, I should write a Kansas city visitors guide on my blog. You should. Yeah, no, definitely. And I, I just wanted to give folks just a couple of suggestions in case, you know, they, they, they wanted, uh, you know, a place to start. And I'm, I'm sure that, you know, based on what you're describing, it seems like there's just a ton and there's more opening, um, you know, every month. Absolutely. Yeah. There, I, you, you will, you'll not be hurting for a place to eat or drink in Kansas city right now. So. Mm, for sure. So are you ready for some fucking lightning round questions? Oh, fuck. I hope so. All right. Let's Pressure's on. What is your favorite cocktail? And if you don't have a favorite of all time, that's okay. Just what's something you maybe have recently fallen in love with, if that's the case? Well, I'm actually going to go old school. Um, it's the horse feather, which I pronounce horse feather. Uh, and most people outside of this region don't know about it because it is apparently a Kansas City or a Lawrence, Kansas thing. And Ryan Maybe, who I mentioned earlier, had kind of been trying to trace the history of it. And I tried but got busy. Yeah. Um, but it's it uh, it's called other things, other places. But, you know, whiskey, ginger beer, dash of bitters, a little lime, horse feather. Mm, so it's kind of like a, a, a mule style. Exactly, yeah, it's like a Moscow mule, but without, with, you know, whiskey instead of vodka. Mm. Um, and apparently in Kentucky, it's called a, a Kentucky mule. Mm. Or, you know, in other regions, because the bourbon, whatever. Right, right, right. Uh, but horse, we call it a horse feather here. Well, I call it a horse feather. Other people call it a horse feather. Uh, and is there anywhere someone could go if they're curious about uh, this cocktail? Is there like a blog on it somewhere? Um, I believe I have a post uh, on what it used to be. If you Googled horse feather cocktail, like five different posts by me would come up. Um, but there is a post on my blog, theboozybungalow.com, about the horse feather. Um so, yeah, if you if you want to read about the horse feather, just make sure your source is uh, in Kansas City. So if you Google horse feather on my site, um, the title is of the post is Fuck Russia, Drink a Horse Feather. Mm, great title. <laughs> um, if you were a, t a cocktail tool or ingredient, what would you be and why? Mm, ingredient is too hard. I can't pick just one. So I'm going to say I'm a really... 
I'm a really shiny cocktail pick. Hmm. What else? Like, I'm, so what else does this pick? Is, are you just kind of like a minimalist pick or are you like, I've got some that look like arrows. No, I'm like a gold one. That's like an unexpected shape, but it's also really sharp. Mm. <laughs> and, um, so it's like a standout a little bit, not exactly what you'd expect. It's something that you're going to have in a drink probably, or in, you know, in a majority or a portion of your drinks. Um, a little surprising, uh, hopefully aesthetically pleasing. I'm referring to my drinks, not myself, but whatever. Um, and you know, really sharp. Mm. But it, it don't, don't, you know, don't poke it. Don't poke yourself with it too much. Or you'll get hurt. Right. Yeah. Draw some blood. Um, what ideally would you be skewering? Ooh, a cocktail onion. <laughs> Are you a Gibson fan? I'm a huge Gibson fan. Okay. That is my martini. So, uh, do you have any tips or tricks related to Gibsoning? Uh, yes. And I, I, I should give credit where credit is due. I totally stole this recipe from Bo Williams, who is a friend of mine who, um, runs the bar at Julep Cocktail Club in Westport, but it's a 50 50 Gibson. So I use Hendrix gin for mine. Um, so 50 50 Hendrix, dry vermouth, uh, a shit ton of Angostura orange bitters, and then I put as many cocktail onions on my cocktail pick as I can fit. And that's my drink. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, and so the onions, how much would you say that they like infuse or influence the drink? Like just for, for someone who's out there who may be intrigued by the Gibson, but a little intimidated by cocktail onions in general, like how, what, what kind of effect do they have? Honestly, it depends on what kind of effect you want it to have. So I have a friend who came over a couple weeks ago and she said she loved gin. I said, oh, I'm going to make you my Gibson. And I said I, something about onions and she kind of freaked out. I was like, don't worry. So I just put one. I made sure, you know, the the, the uh, brine was kind of shaken off of it. I put one cocktail onion on a pick in her Gibson. And um, she told she was like, oh, this is great. Whatever. I really like onions are my favorite garnish. I, I wish I could just go to Costco and turn their like onion machine that makes the perfectly diced onions and just put it in a giant bag and bring it home with me. Um, so cocktail onions are kind of like my dream garnish. I love them. So I will, you know, load up my cocktail pick with them. And then I will even use my bar spoon and put just a little bit of the, the brine in my Gibson. Right. And it's, it's, not completely the same, but it's a similar concept of, you know, like uh, salting something that's sweet uh, enhances the flavor of it. So to have that kind of briny um, influence in the cocktail is just going to give you a, a more fleshed out flavor profile. Is that? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I've been known to also add a pinch of sea salt to my cocktails for mm. that same effect. Mm. Good tip. Good tip. Yeah. So speaking of tips, are there any books about cocktails that have been particularly influential or enjoyable for you? You know, I have so many cocktail books. It would be hard for me to really answer that. But one that sticks out for me right now um, is Maggie Hoffman's The One Bottle Cocktail. And she has been a guest on your show before, correct? She has. Yeah, yeah she's great. And I love her book because like kind of like my approach to cocktail recipes, it's very much for the person who's making drinks at home who doesn't have, I mean, I have a crazy full bar, but it's for someone who might only have a few bottles of alcohol at home. So you're, you don't have all the weird ingredients that bartenders do use at bars. So it's, um, you know, the, a single spirit. And then the rest of the flavor comes from 
you know, fresh syrups you make at home or infusions or things like that. Right. Anything that you can get with one trip to the grocery store or a walk over to your own kitchen pantry, for example. Exactly. Yeah. One thing that Maggie said in our interview has really been kind of rolling around in my head ever since. And, and she said, and this kind of relates to some of the things that we've been talking about today. She said there has never been a larger divide or a, a bigger difference between what professional bartenders are doing and talking about and what home bartenders are doing and talking about. And so, you know, I think that really validates kind of the way that you're approaching, you know, your cocktails um, yeah. for, for your personal blog. Yeah, I hadn't, um, I guess I hadn't noticed that divide as much, but I mean, now that you mention it, yeah, I, uh, I'm very much making drinks for people to make at home, like I said. And, and I think I love that what bartenders are doing in bars and that's great. And I want to go to a bar and drink that. And I don't want to have to think about all of that work at home to make a drink. And most people don't. Right. So it works out well. Yeah. And in that way, we're not stealing business away. You know, I think some people, I, I work in food media as a freelancer and, I, and some people are like, Oh, aren't, aren't bartenders afraid to give out their recipes? Won't they, won't that encourage people to make their drinks at home instead of go to their bar? I'm like, not really. No. You put, you share a recipe to get your name out there. Um, but most people who pick up a local magazine and see a bartender's crazy recipe with, you know, 12 different ingredients is not going to make that at home. So don't worry. They're going to go to the bar and they're going to drink that. And then they're going to find something with a similar flavor profile that they can make at home, but it's not going to stop them from going to the bar and enjoying their drinks. Right. Exactly. You can have, you can have both in your world and, uh, everything was, everything's just fine in the end. Yes. Yes. So I'm going to sneak in an extra question here, uh, but it's not a tough one. I, I try to ask this question whenever I have somebody who is, has a particularly curated approach to, either social media or blogging, uh, anywhere uh, where there are photos being taken of cocktails. Uh, so do you have any advice for somebody who might want to photograph their cocktails and share them on social media, but they want to, you know, make sure that they do a really nice job of it? Um, yeah, it's probably the same advice that most people will give you, but use natural light. Drink photos that are taken in the dark make me sad. There are a few people who do it really, really well. I'm not one of them. Um, but natural light is going to be the most important thing. Um, find a way to be steady. Even if you're using your iPhone. Um, I, I used, I, when I started doing photography, I always used a tripod. I don't really anymore, but try, you know, I've told people if you're studying your, your iPhone on a pint glass, do it. Just don't drop your phone in a pint glass full of drink. Um, be steady, use natural light and garnishes are your best friend, mm -hmm. especially something green. A green garnish will, will take a, a boring cocktail photo into something gorgeous. Yeah. The garnish, uh, and especially this is, this is a real risk, uh, that, that home bartenders face. And I risk is a bit of a strong word because there's really no consequences to it. But, uh, you know, what's the first thing that goes out the window when you're making yourself a drink at home is like, ah, this Negroni's fine. It doesn't need the orange twist because that's going to require an extra one to two minutes of effort on my part to find the peeler, get the orange, peel it, mm -hmm. do the, you know, uh, so I feel like that's what gets thrown out the window in, in most cases. Yeah. And I've even seen people in kind of semi-professional or like hobby 
bartender, home bartender groups who complain about having to make garnishes. And for me, they're kind of the best part. But I come from a prop styling background and a food styling background. And obviously, like aesthetics are very important to me. Um, but there's I think the garnish also can en- enhance the, your experience of the drink. Your, you know, you, your your sense of smell is part of how you taste and enjoy a drink. And a lot of times I, I think the garnish really is necessary to obviously not your enjoyment of the drink. If it's a good drink, it's going to taste good without the garnish. But depending on the garnish and the drink, it really can enhance your experience of the drink. I couldn't agree more about that. Yeah. And especially with like citrus garnishes or herb garnishes, like there's yes. a very direct impact that that has on Absolutely. the uh, aromatic properties of the cocktail yeah. for sure. Like the twist, you're twisting it to get the oil out of the citrus peel. Mm-hmm. So that's really great advice on the on the photograph front. Uh, we'll definitely um, have those little tidbits listed on the show notes page along with everything else that we've talked about here today. Um, and speaking of advice, if you could give one piece of advice to somebody who's just starting out as a home bartender, um, what, what would you tell them? Hmm. Just make what you like, like figure out what are, what are drinks that you know that you like. So figure out what that is. If, if the base spirit is whiskey, like get a bottle of whiskey. If you really like citrus, get some, like look up recipes. There's no shame in using other people's recipes. What I like to, I like to look at recipes and then kind of tweak them to my liking. So, you know, don't try it. You don't need to try to do anything crazy. You just make a drink you like, because at the end of the day, you can make a crazy cocktail recipe. And if you don't like it, it doesn't matter. So just, you know, make something you like and don't, don't try to be the bartender. You're not just, you know, make what you are going to enjoy drinking. Right. Very much a, a ground up approach to cocktails where you're starting with the basics, but uh, not not for like not for the purpose of dumbing it down, for the purpose of um, just making sure that the end product is going to be something you enjoy. Absolutely. And if you know, you know, if you start with um, whiskey and soda even and, you know, OK, well, I need my drink to be a little sweeter than this. OK, well, maybe I really like strawberries, so maybe I'll make a strawberry syrup and add it. You know, you can you can layer on and add. So if, if you start really basic, then you can have a better understanding of how those flavors are built and put together. Mm. That is really good advice. And I, I definitely agree. That's something that we uh, kind of refer to here on the podcast as the zone of proximal drinking, which uh, refers to a, uh, a, the psychology of learning where there's this thing called the zone of proximal development, which kind of posits that people tend to learn best when they are being challenged, but not so much that the task becomes very difficult. So there, you know, it's those baby steps that each time, you know, kind of pushing yourself a little bit further, but yeah, you, absolutely should be starting from somewhere that at least you are familiar with the ingredients and and you are confident in the fact that uh, you're going to be able to put out something that you and the people around you enjoy. Yeah. And do it often enough and you're going to just naturally make, you know, riffs on it and change it up and experiment and learn. And that's, that's the fun of it. Right. Right. Um, Any advice on vulgar language do's and don'ts? Uh, Just got to fucking own it, you know? Like, mm-hmm. don't, if you're going to drop an F-bomb, you got to own that fucking F-bomb, yeah. you know, don't, uh, don't be shy about it. Don't 
say it and then say, oh, I'm so sorry. No, just you got to, you know, got to own it. Yeah. Can I tell you my favorite F-bomb story before we sign off? Please. So as I mentioned, I went to grad school for poetry. And uh, so when I was I was an undergrad at Gettysburg College, which is not too, too far from Maryland, very, very south um, Pennsylvania. And I uh, had just accepted uh, to go to the University of Maryland. And it just so happened that one of the poetry professors there was doing a reading at Gettysburg College that week. So I was like, you know, and, and he was, his name was Stan Plumley, uh, Stanley Plumley. And he's like the, almost like this quintessential poet guy. He's like bushy white hair, a big beard. And, um, I, this is probably going to be a really bad impression of his voice, but he speaks like this <laughs> and this is his cadence and his tone and so i can picture him right now yeah. yes he's he's a he's a specimen um so we we uh, go to this reading uh and the english department there obviously they had like these requirements that students attend a certain number of events uh as a way to get course credits you know you're not you're going to get docked a few points on your on your grade if you don't attend these events so the result was that not everybody who is in attendance of this event really wanted to be there. They're doing, they were doing it to check a box. And so Stan launches into his first poem and it's this dark poem. It's, I think it was called like the crows or something. And it's like very, like very dark and very brooding. And halfway through this, uh, the reading of this first poem, somebody's cell phone goes off in the audience, but this was back when, uh, like you still had ringtones that were like obnoxious songs and stuff. Oh yeah. And so it was just the trashiest, like most obnoxious hip hop song. I don't even remember what it was, but it was like about the least appropriate thing that could happen in that mood and in that setting. <laughs> and so obviously students in Barrett turn off, the, the, they didn't turn it off. Like on the first ring, it just kind of like, I don't know if it was uh, in a purse or something that they, oh. they couldn't turn it off, but it just oh, keeps going. And the most glorious F-bomb I've ever heard was Stan Plumley just stopping in the middle of his poem and saying, turn off your fucking cell phone. <laughs> and I was amazing. The entire room, like you just heard assholes clenching like for miles. It was amazing. So that's my that's my favorite F-bomb story. You know, it's that that's um, I actually just wrote a piece. Uh, for a parenting site I write for about how I'm going to eventually let my kid curse at home. And part of that is that when you want to let somebody know you mean business, drop an F-bomb. <laughs> well, that is uh, that is good advice to live by. And um, can you just let me and all of the listeners know how to best digitally connect with you on the Internet and socials? Yes. The best way to connect with me is to follow me on Instagram at the boozy bungalow. And I told someone this recently for some reason, probably because it's, I haven't been doing it for 20 years. Um, I will always respond to messages in my Instagram, Instagram inbox. It makes me nervous to have unread messages there, even though I have thousands and thousands of unread emails and I don't really listen to my voicemail. Um, so not that I would ever give out my phone number to anyone, but Instagram is the best way to connect with me at the boozy bungalow. Um, if you don't have Instagram, you can, I have a Facebook fan page, The Boozy Bungalow, um, and you can go to the blog, theboozybungalow.com. 
Beautiful. Well, I definitely, I can't recommend the blog enough. Uh, obviously, beautiful pictures on the Instagram, but for me, uh, part of the fun is reading those amazing blog posts and getting a good chuckle every once in a while. So, Emily, thank you, thank you so much for being on the podcast, and uh, hopefully we uh, get around to it at some point. Yeah, this was great. Thank you for having me, and uh, it was really fun. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is, the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here, and by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Bar Cart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners, and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember, folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode was made possible with editing and production assistance by Samantha fucking Reed. Cocktail recipes and insights by Emily F. Bomb Ferris. And a little bit of interview magic by yours fucking truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2018.